0: When it comes to music, uh, my tastes are pretty eclectic. I'm kind of all over the place. Uh, A lot of times when I'm studying, I like to listen to classical or some some other instrumental something. I listen to Sinatra a lot. Of course, I listen to worship music. Uh, I love country music. Of course, by that I mean real country, not the stuff they play on the radio. But, you know, like I said, I'm just kind of all over the place. But what I don't listen to a whole lot anymore these days, like I used to, is, uh, whatever you want to call it, secular rock, you know, like K-rock, Alt-987, that sort of stuff. And it's not even because I don't necessarily like that music anymore. I still like a lot of that music. It's just that it seems like when I put it over there after a while, it's just a bunch of lyrics, and I don't really want or need in my head, and so I just end up flipping it. That said, occasionally, the exact opposite happens. Occasionally, I'll just be driving around, and I'll pop over to K-Rock, and instead of being repulsed by what I'm hearing, I actually find myself kind of captivated by the lyrics I, I hear coming through the airwaves. It's almost like a window into how so much of the surrounding society thinks. And this happened some time ago by uh, a song that's a few years old now, although they still air it. Maybe some of you know it, I don't know. It's a song by The Bravery called Believe, and I want to I read some of the lyrics to you. It says, the faces all around me, they don't smile, they just crack. Waiting for our ship to come, but our ship's not coming back. We do our time like pennies in a jar. What are we saving for? There's a smell of stale fear that's reeking from our skins, but the drinking never stops because the drinks absolve our sins. Interesting line. We sit and grow our roots into the floor, but what are we waiting for? And now here's the chorus. So give me something to believe. Because I'm living just to breathe and I need something more to keep on breathing for. So give me something to believe. And then skipping to the last verse, it says, I'm hiding from some beast, but the beast was always here watching without eyes because the beast is just my fear that I'm just nothing. And now it's just what I've become. What am I waiting for? It's already done. In many ways, that song is the heart cry of the world. It is a brutally honest look at what life without God really is, which is nothingness, meaninglessness. And that is essentially what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. That's what we're going to be studying this morning. If you guys want to find your way there, in case you need help getting there, find a gigantic book in the middle of your Bible, Psalms, that's followed by Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. And by the way, some of you might remember months and months ago, the last time I was standing up here, you might be thinking, didn't you teach the book of Ecclesiastes then too? The answer is yes. No, I'm not a one-hit wonder. I actually do teach from other books of the Bible. (laughs) But I am captivated by this book for some reasons that I want to express to you as you guys are finding your way over there. I've actually done a 180 on the book of Ecclesiastes. When I started teaching a few years back, I actually said to myself, I will never teach from the book of Ecclesiastes. I love all of God's Word, all of it's worth studying. But I just figured, I don't think I'm ever going to teach through the book of Ecclesiastes. And the main reason being, this has to be one of, if not the most, misunderstood and misapplied books in all of Scripture. I've read otherwise reputable scholars and theologians argue, this book, they made a mistake. It shouldn't have even been included in the canon, because so much of it just seems to directly contradict the rest of Scripture. Indeed, that's why this has long been a favorite of atheists and skeptics. Guys like Voltaire loved to quote from this book because it actually seems to support their worldview in a lot of places. It's also been used by cults to support many false doctrines like soul sleep or the denial of eternal punishment for the wicked. Those things actually seem to be espoused in this book. But even worse is it's regularly misunderstood by Christians. Just a small example of this, my wife and I, Andrew, we were in a small group years ago, and the person leading the group at that time was doing a study on biblical contentment. And in the study, they uh, uh, quoted from Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Biblical contentment is eat, drink, and be merry. It's right there in the Bible. So because of all of that, I just figured that's just too much of an uphill battle to climb. There's 65 other books to teach through that would be of more value. But When I finally did end up teaching through it a couple years back, what I came to realize is this book has one of the most profound messages in all of Scripture for our age. And of course, this book is appropriate for every age. This is God's eternal and errant word. But maybe especially for ours, and I pray that studying these first few verses this morning will be beneficial for us. So before we dive too far into the text, even though we just have one week together, it's still important that we understand kind of the setting, the context, the background of this book. And to just do that very briefly, I want to look at just the first few words of the book, chapter 1, verse 1. And by the way, I'll be reading from the NASB this morning. It begins saying, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And so with that, I just want to look at who the writer of this book is because it's going to give us some insight into what's going to transpire. So we see there the writer, the preacher, is Solomon. For those who might not be familiar with Solomon, Israel's greatest king, David, was succeeded by his son Solomon, as verse 1 refers to. You can read all about Solomon's life in 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles, as well as in his own inspired writings in Scripture, Proverbs, the Song of Solomon. And so because of that, we actually have a, we know a great deal about Solomon's life as recorded in Scripture. And in that, we find multiple references that fit him perfectly in this book, such as this book referring to his great wisdom. Remember, his wisdom was given by God, the wisest man ever to live. It refers to his great wealth. He's the wealthiest king in Israel's history, one of the wealthiest men ever to live. It refers to his building programs and and other references. That to say, it seems that this book was written at the end of his life. This is sort of an older man reflecting on his life, which places this writing somewhere around 930 B.C., and that's absolutely fascinating to me because if you just kind of update some of the language in this book, it's as if it could have been written last week which really illustrates the ideas put forth in this book are not relegated to some specific time or culture, but rather they have spanned all cultures and the millennia. It's really amazing to see how God uses this unique book to speak directly to our hearts in this generation. So, with that brief background, let's get into it. Again, I'm going to start at the beginning of verse 1 again. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem... Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? Now, in these first few verses, we find a key word and a key phrase that are absolutely vital to understanding not only what we're going to be studying this morning, but just the entirety of the book. And maybe some of you, like many others in studying this book on your own, have just kind of thought, What in the world is this book all about? I I don't get this. Well, hopefully, this will help you again, not only this morning, but just in your own personal studies. Because if we miss this, we miss the entire point of the book, and we'll be in danger of misunderstanding and misapplying the message of this book, as so many have. So, first, the key word of this book is vanity. Some translations have meaningless Uh, That occurs 37 times in this book. It occurs over and over and over. And although the word translated vanity is a good translation, it doesn't quite capture the full meaning for us. The Hebrew word really means a breath, a wind, a vapor. So its fuller meaning is something without real substance, value, permanence, significance, or meaning. That's a major theme throughout this book as well as our study this morning. And the second thing we need to understand is the phrase in verse 3, under the sun. And again, this occurs 29 times. We come across this over and over in this book. And I would say this is the single most important key to understanding the book of Ecclesiastes. Under the sun is the perspective Solomon is giving us in this book. In other words, the preaching, the philosophy, the wisdom espoused in this book is confined to this earth. It's a collection of human, not divine wisdom. Of course, all of scripture is breathed out by God, but God breathed this portion of scripture out so that it would reflect human, not divine wisdom. So what we find is Solomon trying to solve the greatest riddle, the riddle of the meaning and purpose of life confined to the limits of his own mind and the temporal perspective of this earth, all that is under the sun. And so the constantly depressing conclusions that he comes to that seem to contradict other parts of scripture are simply man's attempt to answer life's most important questions without the benefit of God's revelation. So if we can understand that, then this book makes a lot more sense and we will understand why God included this book in the canon. Most importantly, we will understand the answers God gives man's most universally troubling question, troubling questions which again is why this book is so relevant. So with that understanding, the preacher wastes no time. There are no preliminaries whatsoever. He just dives right in, and it's not pretty. This is not uplifting in the slightest. I doubt anybody finds their life verses here, which, by the way, I'd say that's one of the really cool things about God's Word. The Bible doesn't shy away from the tough stuff. It doesn't try and duck the difficult issues. Rather, it states them plainly, and it takes them on. And we have one of those issues right here. In fact, maybe it's the issue of life. It's what has plagued man for millennia. And that is vanity of vanity, all is vanity. In fact, to really make the point, Solomon says it twice. Vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, I think we'd all agree that there are parts of life that seem to be meaningless. But Solomon here, he specifies exactly what it is in life that is meaningless. He says it right there in verse 2. All is vanity. All. Everything. This is his opening argument. All of life, everything in life, life itself is transitory, fleeting, useless, empty, and futile. It's all just a vapor. Now how's that for a sobering thought? Hope nobody came here this morning to be cheered up because this is going to bring anybody down. At least we can praise him for his straightforwardness. But he doesn't just say that. He tells us exactly why it's meaningless in verse 3 when he basically says there's no advantage to any work you do in this life. And this is basically what he excuse me what he's going to be showing us through the remainder of this book but he front loads this here By saying, of course, there are things that we can do to work work toward in life that, that seem to profit more than others. But ultimately, at the end of it all, anything you devote yourself to has no ultimate meaning or purpose under the sun. This life. Remember, that's the perspective he's writing from. Doesn't matter what you set your mind to accomplish in this life. At the end of it all, all your effort is really meaningless from an earthly temporal perspective. Now, what I think this is saying... Is every idol you can find under the sun to devote your life to will be meaningless. And boy, if there's a message this world needs to hear, it's that. This world is filled with idols and filled with people who have given themselves completely to them in hopes that they can attain meaning, but in the end, all of them, 100% of them, will leave them echoing the words of Solomon it is all meaningless. You see, what Solomon's describing here is despair. Not sorrow, but despair. There is a difference between those two things. Sorrow is a pain that can be consoled because it comes from losing one good thing among other good things. You might find an example of this in a, a man who loses his job only to be comforted by his family. And he realizes the importance of his family over his job. So he might have had a, a time of sorrow, but ultimately he didn't have despair. But despair, unlike sorrow, is inconsolable because it comes from losing an ultimate thing. And when a person loses their ultimate source of meaning, there are no alternatives to turn to. Their spirit is broken. They're in despair. There's no longer any meaning in life, which brings us back to idolatry. Now, typically, people think of idolatry along the lines of God's carved out of Wood, stone, marble that are worshipped. We find examples of this in scripture like the Old Testament Philistine god Dagon or Paul walking around Athens in Acts seventeen sixteen says his spirit was being provoked within him. And as he was beholding the city full of idols, Paul saw hundreds of statues of the Greek gods around the city that today we still go and marvel at. And he just saw a bunch of idols. But I suppose we like to think that, uh, you know, we've evolved beyond that. We're not so crass and unsophisticated as that. We don't worship idols carved out of marble. And although that's largely true in our society, not totally true, but that's largely true, there is really no fundamental difference in our society when it comes to idol worship. Our society is full of idols, replete with shrines, whether we're talking about Office towers, universities, malls, gyms, what have you, where we go to make sacrifices in order to procure blessings from our gods. In Orange County, how many people think life is all about having a successful career? And as a result, how many men today really practice a modern day form of child sacrifice? Sacrificing family to just continually achieve more and more success and wealth. Or how about the woman who's driven to offer her daily sacrifice at the gym, totally obsessed with her body and her beauty. It drives her every waking thought. Both are worshiping idols in every sense that the ancients were. So don't think for a second that idolatry is limited to bowing down to a physical idol. And although there are references to that in Scripture, don't think that's the only way Scripture defines idol worship either. The Bible makes it clear that idol worship can be done internally in our heart and soul without ever bowing down to a physical idol. Let me give you a couple examples. Ezekiel 14, 2. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. Or God speaking through his prophet Habakkuk regarding the Babylonians, Habakkuk 1.1, 1, 1, they whose strength is their God, it says. A few verses later, verse 16, therefore they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net, referring to their military strength being their idol. They were making sacrifices to that. I find it absolutely fascinating in Ezekiel 16 and Jeremiah chapters 2 and 3. Israel's charged by, uh, with idolatry by God, not because they were worshiping the false gods around them, but because they made treaties with Egypt and Assyria and relied on them for their security. God calls that idol worship. So far from being limited to bowing down to wooden statues, the Bible refers to idolatry, as Tim Keller says, <clears throat> as looking to your own wisdom and competence or to some other created thing to provide the power, approval, comfort, and security that only God can give. In other words, an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything that you look to to give you what only God can give you. It's substituting something for God in your heart, making that the center of your life. And often for Christians, it's not simply substituting, but it's at least letting something compete on the mantle of our hearts with God. And so before we kind of get too haughty and uppity, and we start thinking about some famous person who made fame and drugs their idol, and they end up paying the ultimate price, let's remember the definition I gave of sorrow and despair. Despair is when we lose an ultimate thing, in other words, our idol, and that is not limited to sinful things. The Bible makes clear the human heart takes good things, like career, love, material possessions, health sports, spouses, kids, and a host of other good things, and we turn them into ultimate things. And so we can say, as Tim Keller does, an idol is often a good thing that we turn into an ultimate thing. In other words, pretty much anything can be an idol. John Calvin, in his famous work, The Institutes, reflecting on the constant idolatry in Scripture and in the world, wrote some of the truest words ever when he said the human mind is a perpetual forge of idols. That has been paraphrased to say the human heart is an idol factory. And boy, is that the truth. We humans, even regenerate humans, we can take just about anything, even good things, gifts from God, ministry itself, and we can turn it into an idol. See, this is the premise of the preacher. This is what he's really getting at. It's as if he's saying in this book, life is full of idols, they're all over the place, and you can devote your entire life to them, but in the end, you'll find they're all meaningless vapors, every single one of them. Believe me, I've tried them all, I'll show you what I mean. If you hang with me long enough, I bet eventually I'll hit your idol, and I'll show you too that it's meaningless, and then he basically proceeds to do that for 12 chapters. So if I could, with some trepidation, I hesitate trying to give a summary definition of an entire book of the Bible, but... If I could sum up the message of this book, it would probably be something pretty close to this. If we look to some created thing to give us the meaning, hope, and happiness that only God himself can give, it will eventually fail to deliver, it will break your heart, and it will leave you in inconsolable despair. And please do not think that that's limited to just the unsaved. Now, this book, properly understood, is an apologetic of sorts for the skeptic. The truths we we learn today and in this book certainly can help us in witnessing as we seek to get to the, the core issue of the human heart's rejection of the gospel. But this is an apologetics class this morning, and as far as I know, I'm not speaking to a room full of skeptics. I'm speaking to a room full largely of people who are saved by the true God. And that's why I was so careful not to just offer this five-word definition of idolatry and then move on. Because if we take a little time to work through what Scripture says, a little bit fuller meaning, we understand what God really says about idolatry, and then we understand that we too, just as Israel, who knew the one true God, we too, who know the one true God, can fall into idolatry. We can be just as guilty of following the idols of this world as the unsaved are. So let's not just approach this study this morning thinking, oh man, I wish so-and-so could hear this. If they need to hear it, great, pass it on. Excuse me. But let's also let God's word speak to us and identify any areas where we may have fallen into idol worship so that we can repent and purge these idols from our lives and give ourselves completely to the one true God. So with that as our goal, let's continue Before Solomon launches into his examples of specific idols in these first 11 verses, he expands the idea that they're all meaningless, vanity, by comparing them to the monotonous cycles of life. You think the work you do, the idol you live for has value? The preacher asks in verse 3. Well, in verse 4, he says, A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Talk about vapor. We think our lives and pursuits are so important. Well, the preacher reminds us that generation after generation comes and goes, but the earth's still here. I was confronted with this in a a pretty real way a little while back when our neighbor across the street rather suddenly died. It was weird. Literally, we saw him one day the next morning. His wife came over to tell us that he had passed. One day he was there. The next day he was gone. But I looked out the window and his nice shiny truck was still sitting there on the street. The rose bushes he tended to every day were still there looking beautiful. He had a closet full of clothes just like he'd left them. And so I was kind of thinking about that. And, you know, I said to Andrea, it's just, it's so weird how we're outlived by inanimate objects. It's pretty humbling, actually. We're going to come and go. Meanwhile, assuming Christ hasn't returned, San Bernardino Mountains, still going to be sitting out there. Catalina, still be sitting off the coast. We'll be long gone. They'll still be here as a testament to the vapor our lives really are. Psalm continues, verse 5. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. Blowing toward the south and turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow Again. Again, you think working for your idol has any advantage? Solomon says it doesn't. He says our work is like the cycles of nature. The sun rises and sets continually. The winds follow predictive patterns, but they never get anywhere. The rivers constantly flow into the sea, but the sea's never full. We're like the sun, he says, verse 5, who hastens to its place. That literally means it pants from exhaustion, all the while never reaching any fixed goal. And if we're honest, I think we can relate to this somewhat. Our our lives, maybe not all of us, but for a lot of us, I'm sure our lives are more monotonous than we would like to admit. Again, I know this doesn't capture everybody, but for most of us, probably Monday through Friday, we probably wake up about the same time, read our Bible, work out, shower, eat breakfast, whatever our morning routine is, probably do about the same thing. Then we drive to work on the same streets and freeways. We sit in the same desk next to the same people, take lunch about the same time, we go to the same three places we always go to, we come back, finish our work day, drive those same streets back home, come home, take care of the kids, eat dinner, watch TV, go to bed, wake up the next day, do it all over again. Life's a lot more like Bill Murray and Groundhog Day than a lot of us would probably like to admit. (laughs) As Solomon points that out, he gives the conclusion of many who've looked honestly at this in verse 8. He says, All things are wearisome, Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. It's all wearisome, he says. And even when we try and break the monotony and futility of our lives with new pursuits and sensations, ultimately our eyes and ears are never satisfied. It's like a treadmill. It might raise our heart rate a bit. might make us a little sweaty. But ultimately we realize we haven't gotten, actually I haven't gone anywhere. We haven't really had any ultimate satisfaction we have a temporary satisfaction for sure. Kind of like when we get a new car. I mean, this is terrible to say, and I, I, I probably shouldn't be saying this, but isn't it true? Somehow, don't we just feel better inside when we get a new car? It's like, it's like we're 16 again. We oh, I'm looking, to, I can't wait to get off work and drive. Looking for excuses to drive this car. I want to show my friends my car. I love this car. But before too long, it just becomes our car. That initial joy we had, it doesn't last. Pretty soon we realize, i got to keep making that payment that comes every month. i got to keep putting gas in this car and maintaining it and washing it. And then it gets older and older. And pretty soon that car that we just had to have that gave us so much joy, we don't even want it anymore. We want this one. We don't want that one anymore. And see, so we're right back to where we started. And that's why the preacher says in verse 9, That which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it is new. Already it has existed for ages which were before us. There's a familiar line to us, nothing new under the sun. It's hard for me to read that and not think about movies. I'm old enough now to... See all those 80s cartoons I grew up watching now being made into movies. A-Team, Dukes Hazard, G.I. Joe, Transformers. All the comic book movies. And and I love them. But, you know, they've been redone and redone. Spider-Man made three movies with Tobey Maguire. Now they're redoing that with the amazing Spider-Man. Christopher Reeves was Superman when I was a kid. Then they had that guy in between that nobody knows. And now they're starting again with Dean Cavill. Same thing with Batman. That's been done a number of times. It's the same thing with history, really. Many students of history have come to the conclusion that there's nothing new under the sun. Certainly technologies change, fashion and trends come and go, but that really amounts to props on the stage of a play changing. In reality, many argue, hasn't history really kind of repeated itself over and over? The more people study history, the more they have come to that conclusion. In fact, I read a couple of really interesting interviews Uh, Recently, with the authors of the book, The Fourth Turning, this book's been applauded in secular circles as visionary, the basic premise of this book, specific to American history, they've identified uh, four approximately 20-year cycles that just repeat themselves over and over, and it's absolutely fascinating to listen to them go through the entire history of America and kind of show how these four cycles have repeated themselves. Now, of course, as students of Scripture, we don't believe in Lion King history. We don't believe the circle of life just keeps repeating. We understand history is linear, that God has a beginning and an end plan with his working history according to his purposes. But again, from the perspective of this book, Under the Sun, there's a lot of truth to what Solomon is saying here. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot that's new under the sun. Everything we see, it's been done before. But there are always those who say, well, that may be true for a lot of people, but I'm not going to fall prey to that. I'm going to accomplish such great things that I am going to be remembered. And to that person, the preacher says in verse 11, There is no remembrance of earlier things and also of the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. So to those who think they're so great that they're going to be remembered, Solomon says, "Nah, you won't be. You'll be forgotten along with everybody else. I wonder how many of us can name our great-great-grandfather. Probably not too many, but maybe a handful. And I'm only talking about a few generations back. I'm not asking you to go back a thousand years. I'm just talking about a couple hundred years, if that. And even if somebody could pull a name out of a hat because they or somebody in their family put together a family tree, do you really know anything about them? You probably have name, birth date, death date, city died in. But do you know anything about them, who they were? Probably not. Yet despite how quickly people are forgotten, studies show the number one thing adolescents want to be today is famous. Famous for what, you ask them? Doesn't matter. Just famous. Famous. That's the most important idol to pursue for many. I think one of the best responses to that are those man-on-the-street tests they do, interviews they do, where they ask people questions like, Who's James Buchanan? I always get a kick out of listening to that. I don't know. Isn't he on NCIS? (laughs) He's the 15th president of the United States. He was the president before Abraham Lincoln. This guy was the president of the United States. And within 150 years, he's remembered by almost no one, aside from history buffs. Someone might say, yeah, but there are a lot of people we do remember. And that's true. But many of them are people like Alexander the Great or Genghis Khan. Men men remembered because they brutally subjugated people as they attempted to take over the world. Which, by the way, they died and their successors couldn't hold on to their territory. So Solomon would probably, probably say, what was the point of all of that? And even those who aren't remembered for their evil, like Plato or Shakespeare, we're talking about very, very few of the billions of people who have lived on this earth. The vast majority of people who have ever been born came and went, and within a short amount of time, they were forgotten, even by their own families. You see, what we're being confronted with here is nihilism. It permeates this book, and it permeates the lives of many people around us. Nihilism comes from the, the Latin root nil. It's the word nothing, so literally it means nothingism. It says there's no meaning in life. There's no objective basis for values, so you create your own values. Every belief, every considering of something true is necessarily false because there's simply no true world. Truth is whatever you want it to be. We're starting to hear that a lot more and more these days. And so nihilism is often associated with extreme pessimism, radical skepticism. The famous German atheist Nietzsche, echoing this, said, One interpretation of existence, referring to religion, has been overthrown. Remember, he was the guy who declared God was dead. But since it was held as the interpretation, it seems no meaning is left in existence. I credit Nietzsche for his intellectual honesty. You get rid of God you get rid of meaning. And before you think that this is some of some sort of esoteric, no one I know really believes that this kind of sort of philosophy, the purposelessness of the universe has preoccupied artists, philosophers, and songwriters for generations, such as that bravery song I began with today. You don't have to open a philosophy book to come across this. You just have to flip on K-Rock. Now that we've covered some territory, let me read that last verse from that bravery song again. I'm hiding from some beast, but the beast was always here, watching without eyes because the beast is just my fear that I'm just nothing. Now it's just what I've become. What am I waiting for? It's already done. Well, thousands of years before the bravery or Nietzsche, the preacher wrote exactly that. Here's the reality we're being confronted with in this book. If you're looking for meaning in this life under the sun, if that's the extent of your horizon, the stuff of this world, yourself, your desires, in the end, you will be left with the reality that it's all meaningless. And even if you argue that your work allowed you to have a family and leave a legacy in your kids, Solomon throws the trump card in verse 11 and reminds you that even your own descendants are going to completely forget you within a few generations. Ultimately, there was no meaning to it. It was a vapor. (sighs) Glad you came to church today. Boy, Scott, thanks. Can't wait to wake up and go to work tomorrow. Well, like I said, that's one of the things that I love so much about God's Word because just as life isn't all rainbows and popsicles, either is God's Word. And what's being presented in these first 11 verses that Solomon works out for the next 11 half chapters is one of the most honest appraisals of life we could ever be confronted with. This, This is real. What we're studying this morning, this is real. Anyone who is honest... About life apart from God is going to come to this conclusion or something like it at one point or another in their life. Whether it comes from feeling like your life's meaningless because you haven't accomplished any of your dreams, or even worse, as many have found out, because you accomplished all of your dreams and then some and realized you were still empty. Either way, the conclusion many reach is this is meaningless. And so now, we as Christians thinking about this, after being confronted with this, we have to ask ourselves, well, is this true? Is this right? Is what the preacher's presenting here accurate? And we would have to answer absolutely yes, as he's presenting it. If a person is searching for meaning in the idols of this life only, this is the logical conclusion. And we should most certainly be using that when we're witnessing to people. This gets to the very heart of the matter. Quite literally. But as, as I said earlier, there's a lesson for those of us who are saved here too. And I think one of the best places to find that lesson is to connect this to Romans chapter 8. So if you would, I want to read a few verses. Flip over to Romans chapter 8 with me. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Now, the Greek... Of course, I'm sure everybody knows Ecclesiastes originally written in Hebrew, Romans originally written in Greek. So, the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word translated vanity in Ecclesiastes, we find here in Romans chapter 8, verse 20, translated futility. Same word. So, yes, the creation, as Solomon referenced, has been subjected to futility, to vanity. Even if you're saved, you have to admit you've been struck by the monotony of life at times. There's a lot of truth to what Solomon said. Our lives and surrounding nature often seems to be monotonous futility. So yes, there's very real truth to that, but there is no truth to the conclusion of nihilism. There's no truth to the conclusion that because what we can observe in this life seems to be futile, then it really is futile. Romans reminds us, Creation is subject to futility not by randomly evolving forces of nature, but by God himself. And not only that, it was subjected by him as a result of our sinful rebellion against him, our creator. So what the preacher wrote is real. We, along with creation, groan to be set free from the slavery of corruption, all the striving for the false idols of this world. That amounts to nothing short of slavery. The unsaved don't have that truth. We need to get it to them. But the question I have this morning is, how can those of us who do have that truth still fix our gaze on the idols of this world? How can that be? As verse 24 says, If you're here and you're not a Christian, or maybe you're here and you claim to be a Christian, but practically speaking, you live your life in pursuit of the things of the world on what is seen under the sun. You look and act like the world around you. All your goals, values, and priorities are exactly like the unsaved around you. Then like the bravery, like Nietzsche, like Solomon, like so many in the surrounding world, you have no hope at all. If some of you here today are giving your hearts and lives to that, let me save you some time. Let Solomon save you some time. You don't have any hope. Just like that bravery song concluded, this is not where our hope lies. But if you're saved, you are a child of God. You've been adopted by the Father through Christ. And that means our hope doesn't lie in anything in this world. Our hope, our meaning, our purpose is found in verse 25. What we do not see. It's only when we look beyond the horizon of this life, the exact opposite perspective of the book of Ecclesiastes, to God and his redemptive plan through Christ, the cross, and the resurrection, that is the only place that we find true hope. And that is the only thing that breaks the spell of the idols of this world, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot be modern-day syncretists. This is what Israel was so often condemned for doing in the Old Testament. Often when Israel in the Old Testament was condemned by God of idolatry, it wasn't just that they had forsaken God for the surrounding the, the gods of the surrounding nations. It was often that they added the false gods of the surrounding nations to the one true God. We'll keep you, God. We just want to add these other gods to make sure we have all our bases covered. We can't do that. We can't serve God and Jesus plus. We can't pr- proclaim Christ and an ice house. Christ and a comfortable life, Christ and a spouse, Christ and kids, Christ and health, Christ and riches, Christ and whatever it is that we think is going to make us happy. We can't do that. Either Christ is our everything or he is nothing. And in case anybody thinks I'm being a little too extreme on that, that is exactly what Christ himself said. In Matthew 6, 24, he said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You can't serve God and stuff. You can't serve God and idols. That is impossible. Either Jesus is our all-satisfying treasure, or the stuff of this world is. That's the profound message of this book. In a way, the few other areas of the Bible are, we must hear this and recognize the idols that we may have given our hearts to. We must honestly recognize that, but of course we don't, we don't stop there. We turn from them to God in Christ. And once we're made alive by the truth of the gospel as his adopted children, that is where our gaze must remain. Not on this world. It is futile. It's full of idols that lead to hopelessness. We've been given eyes to see through that. We've been given power to keep our focus continually on Christ, to set our mind on the things above where Christ is, not on the things of earth. I was just talking to Joe this morning before. If you're paying attention to what's going on in this world, it is bonkers. I mean, not, not, I mean both domestically and globally, it's, it's, it would be absolutely frightening if we didn't know that there was a sovereign God in charge of all of it. At the very least, looking at that, at the very least, as children of God who have the truth, that should remind us that although this world is tempting, and although it will continually work to make us believe it will satisfy us, it never will. Only God satisfies through the gospel. Only God gives us the joy, peace, and contentment we desire in the gospel only the gospel answers the desperate longing we all have in our hearts. Only the gospel saves us and restores us and keeps us in Christ. And when we repent and we are saved by that truth and we enter into fellowship with him, then and only then do we find our greatest joy, hope, and And satisfaction, the very reason and purpose for which we were created to glorify Him, to worship Him, and to enjoy fellowship, sweet communion with Him for eternity, which we'll be celebrating this morning. And once we capture that, excuse me, we don't move beyond that. We don't move beyond the power of God's grace. That's not a momentary thing, that's a moment by moment thing for the rest of our lives. We live under the power of His grace. And so with our eyes fixed on the cross in joyful, worshipful amazement that we've been saved, we've been saved, we've been made co-heirs with Christ through the power of his word and his spirit, the idols of this world lose their grip. We see them for the, for the rubbish, for the childish trinkets that they are compared to our amazing treasure, Jesus Christ. And then when that happens, when we live lives like that, The world sees a redeemed people, a people redeemed by God, totally enraptured in worship of him, living for him in a profound way that stands out in this dark world of nothingness. And as we live to tell them and show them with the way that we live our lives, that our treasure, the satisfaction of our deepest longings, is never going to be satisfied by anything under the sun, but only in Christ continually seek Christ. Continually spend time with him in his word and prayer. Keep your gaze fixed on him, longing for his return and continually preach his truth so that others can be set free from the idols of this world and discover the only true joy and satisfaction, God in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, every word of it. Lord, I pray this morning for those of us here who may not be saved, who may not have surrendered their lives to you, or still looking to the idols of this world. I pray that you would draw them to you. I pray that you would save them today. And Lord, those of us who profess your name but still feel our hearts, tugged by the things of this world, let me be the first to repent for my wandering heart, God. I pray that you would just give us minds and hearts that are so enraptured by you that truly live with you as our treasure that we see the world for what it is. And instead of pursuing this world, we pursue the worship of you by the nations by proclaiming your name by our words and by our lives. We praise you so much, God. Thank you for saving us and giving us eternal fellowship with you. Amen.